suffer political oppression, economic exploitation, and social degradation, all of them from the same enemy. The government has failed us. You can't deny that. Anytime you live in the 20th century, 1964, and you walking around here singing, we shall overcome, the government has failed. I can conceive of a national destiny which meets the responsibilities of today and measures up to the possibilities of tomorrow. We will continue to shape the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. Citizens of America expect more. They deserve and they want more. Applied Political Philosophy. You're listening to the Applied Political Philosophy Podcast, an exploration of political ideas, political reality, and political possibilities. A show about the opportunities for change and improvement in the American political system and the obstacles to achieving them. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller. In this final episode of season one, we're going to be considering the difference between reform and revolution as ways of bringing about political change. Among other things, we'll try to examine the reasons why frustrated reformers might turn to revolution. The word reform gets used a lot in American political discourse, but the word revolution or revolutionary rarely does. Not unless you're Bernie Sanders, who has openly and consistently called for a political revolution in America. Bernie Sanders' Guide to Political Revolution, which Bernie released in 2017, was a 177-page compendium of the things he was calling for during the 2016 campaign, and which he has continued to advocate in favor of. This next segment considers whether Bernie really is a political revolutionary, as he calls himself, or in fact, a policy reformer. Spoiler alert, our correspondent considers him a policy reformer. Let's hear why. On major issue after major issue, the vast majority of Americans support a progressive agenda and widely reject the economic views of the Republican Party. Go into any community in this country, including the most conservative states, and you'll not find many people who think that it makes sense to give hundreds of billions in tax breaks to the top 1%, while at the same time cutting Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, education, and health care. Thus Bernie Sanders, in the so-called Guide to Political Revolution. Oddly, the phrase political revolution only appears once other than in the title, at the end of the foreword, where he writes, This is your country. Help us take it back. Join the political revolution. The only other uses of the word revolution in the entire 177 pages of the book refer to the Industrial Revolution. So what is Bernie really calling for here, and why isn't the phrase political revolution strewn throughout his writing? The headings in the table of contents tell us what he's actually advocating for. Chapter 1. Guaranteeing a livable wage and a decent life. Chapter 2. Real tax reform. Chapter 3. Reforming Wall Street. Chapter 4, Health Care for All. Chapter 5, Making Higher Education Affordable. Chapter 6, Combating Climate Change. Chapter 7, We Need Real Policing and Criminal Justice Reform. Chapter 8, Immigration Reform Now. And Epilogue, What is Government Anyway? What we have here is largely a blueprint for economic reform, with some criminal justice and immigration reform thrown in right at the end. There are no proposals to change electoral or legislative processes to make it easier to achieve these economic policy goals. Even in the epilogue, What is Government Anyway?, where you might expect to find some ideas for political reform to help make it easier to bring about the policy reforms he's calling for, Bernie says only this. 
The key purpose of the Constitution and Bill of Rights is to ensure that the voice of the individual citizen is both heard and counted through the election process and tripart system of checks and balances. It is up to each of us to decide whether the people who have been elected are hearing our voice. We must insist on transparency in government by holding each and every elected official accountable. When we are disappointed by how they represent us, we must work to replace them. Now, I don't mean to run down Bernie or downplay how radically transformative his proposals are. He's asking for a fundamental recalibration of the economic playing field in America, and that's not nothing. But as I said, this is really a blueprint for economic reform. Far-reaching economic reform, certainly. Not a call for political revolution. Or even a plan for political reform. William Uren, the progressive-era reformer who birthed the Oregon system of direct democracy, began as an advocate of the single tax, a major economic reform proposal of the time. But realizing that it would take significant political reform to get the single tax enacted, Uren became a leading figure in the history of political reform by working towards the establishment of the initiative and referendum. He changed the political system so that it would be possible to get his favored tax reform policy turned into law. Sadly, even ironically, when the single tax measure was eventually brought up before the voters of Oregon via citizen initiative, it was defeated by a wide margin. Uren failed to get the single tax enacted, but he left behind an unparalleled legacy of political reform. And over 100 years later, we, the people of Oregon, still rely on the political reforms he championed to turn our voices into law. The legacy Bernie Sanders will leave behind is potentially transformative. He makes a clear appeal to the rising generation, which he calls the smartest, most idealistic, and least prejudiced generation in the modern history of the United States. This is a generation that is prepared to think big and move this country in a very different direction than we have been traveling for years. These are the people Bernie invites to join his so-called political revolution. Let us rather call it a progressive crusade for sweeping economic policy reform so that no one is confused about what they're getting when they join Bernie's movement. He wants the common people to take power in America, but he has no proposals other than, quote, work to replace them, unquote, to make it easier for the people to claim the kind of power he wants them to exercise. If it's not the people's wishes, but the political system that's getting in the way of these policy reforms, then we need some serious political changes. We will have to leave it to others, the future William Urens of the world, to advocate for those political reforms that might make our political system more inclusive, responsive, and empowering to the people who want the economic reforms that Bernie Sanders supports. So this government has failed us. The government itself has failed us. And the white liberals who have been posing as our friends have failed us. And once we see that all these other sources to which we've turned have failed, we stop turning to them and turn to ourselves. We need a self-help program, a do-it-yourself philosophy, a do-it-right-now philosophy. Uh, it's already too late philosophy. This is what you and I need to get with. And the only time, the only way we're going to uh, solve our problem is with a self-help program. Before we can get a self-help program started, we have to have a self-help philosophy. Black nationalism is a self-help philosophy. Once you change your philosophy, you change your thought pattern. Once you change your thought pattern, you change your, your attitude. Once you change your attitude, it changes your behavior pattern. And then you go on into some action. As long as you got a sit-down philosophy, you'll have a sit-down thought pattern. And as long as you think that old sit-down thought, you'll be uh, in some kind of sit-down action. 
they'll have you sitting in everywhere. It's not so good to refer to what you're going to do as a sit-in. Then right there, castrates you. Right there, it brings you down. What, what goes with it? What Think of the image of a, someone sitting. An old woman can sit. An old man can sit. A chump can sit. A coward can sit. Anything can sit. Well, you and I have been sitting long enough, and it's time today for us to start doing some standing and some fighting to back that up. So, okay. Maybe we really do need a revolution to achieve the kinds of things that Bernie and his progressive supporters want to see, or to achieve racial justice, or maybe just to empower we the people to have a stronger voice in government, to bring about a true manifestation of government of, by, and for the people. For this next segment, we'll consider the differences between reform and revolution, and compare the risks and benefits of each. Today, I'm going to compare reform and revolution. What political reform is, and what its limitations are. One of the things about... uh, democratic system is that it can be fixed from within, that's political reform, or it can be overthrown. A democratic system actually makes room in its very nature to internal reform. So a democratic system can be self-healing. That's what reform is. And I say can be because it isn't always. Democratic systems often don't heal the problems that people have with them, the way that it falls short of manifesting and living up to its values. And democratic systems can limp along, failing to you know, essentially keep the promises that their founding documents make. They can then also be overthrown when they don't self-heal. That creates death. Like, you know, it, the death of a democratic system is, is a revolution. But one of the interesting things about a democratic system is that it has the potential to be self-healing. Autocratic systems have the potential to be self-healing, but it's not built in. It can happen, but it takes a very specific and very rare set of conditions that you essentially have a reformist autocrat. It's a rare autocrat that actually will engage in healing of the political system or transformation of the political system without significant external or internal pressure, external from other nations or internal from social and and, uh, revolutionary movements, coups, dissident movements, popular uprisings. So it can happen, but it's not a normal part of it. In the democratic system, political reform is always an opportunity. Now, one of the things that this means, though, is that in order to reform the democratic system, you have to use the democratic system that exists already to change the democratic system. So, political reform is using the existing democratic system to improve the system. A revolution overthrows the existing system in order to make an improvement. Revolutions both succeed and fail, and historically they largely fail to make the world a better place. They, they largely fail to actually improve the situation. But that's not a hard and fast rule, and there are, there are revolutions that actually work out. Reform has the same problem. Like, sometimes the democratic system can't be improved internally. It doesn't heal itself, and it limps along. Other times, there are changes that are made to the way a democracy functions that are uh, created through the democratic system itself that actually either don't improve the system or make the problem worse, or what usually happens is they solve one problem only to create another problem. One example is direct democracy. 
Uh, direct democracy addresses the problem of a corrupt and unresponsive representative system. It can solve that problem, or it can at least mitigate that problem to a certain extent, but it creates new problems. One new problem is that it puts in the hands of people who really aren't policymakers, the people, the ability to make policy. So it gives a tool to an unskilled artisan. Another problem that's, that, that it creates is that the processes themselves can be beneficial disproportionately to different groups in society. So one of the things about getting an initiative on the ballot is you need a certain number of signatures. Well-funded organizations can much more likely meet the signature threshold than poorly funded organizations. And so ballot measures that have the backing of financially successful individuals or organizations it, it, it is much more likely to be enacted than a ballot measure that has the support of dedicated good people who don't have a lot of financial resources. And they have to make up for that lack of financial resources by relying on activist energy and other resources. And it's harder to, to turn those other resources into success than it is to turn money into political success. So that's just one example. And that's not to say that that particular political reform, the creation of the initiative and referendum, is a bad one. It's to say that reforms have the potential to actually fix a problem only, only to, to create other problems. Part of the great thing about the fact that a democracy is a self-healing process is that when you use the democratic system to heal a problem with the democratic system and you create a new problem or you fail to solve the, problem, the original problem, there is still the ongoing possibility of using the existing democratic system to improve it. You can actually like use the system of direct democracy or the system of representative democracy to try to fight against the signature threshold problem, the advantage of money that's created by the signature threshold requirement for a ballot measure. When a new either unanticipated problem arises from a, from a successful reform or a, an anticipated problem, but one that was just kind of like, well, we'll, we'll, we'll just deal with that later. When these new problems arise, the democratic system is then still there to make ongoing reform. One of the things that's great about a federal system is that political reform can be carried out at a smaller scale, so it's easier to achieve, and it can also then be a kind of a proving ground to determine whether or not there are unforeseen problems with this particular reform and what those problems are and how severe they are and are there ways to mitigate it. So states can experiment with political reforms and other states can watch and learn whether or not that reform is going to have, is going to create more problems than it solves or they can say, well, it created those problems and so we can, we can enact a reform that's going to solve the original problem and mitigate against this new problem arising in such a, a bad way. So that is one of the things that can happen. So like for example, right now, in the world that we live in, with a, a pandemic threatening the ability of people to go vote or, or for there to be a vigorous vote, Oregon, which has had mail-in balloting for over a decade, can be a model. And so people who are worried like, oh, mail-in voting, it has all these problems in theory, like all, these, all this potential abuse, all these potential problems. Because Oregon has experimented with this for well over a decade, other states that are worried about people waiting in line to vote during a global pandemic can say, okay, Let's look at Oregon's system and has it created new problems? And if it has, are there ways that we could prevent those problems from arising in our own state by doing our own particular mail-in 
balloting. And then uh, what that means is that those people who are resisting mail-in balloting by saying, oh, it's this system that's ripe with problems and, and abuse and corruption, proponents of it can point to a specific place and not just to a theory, they can point to a specific place or places where this has been used and it has been used without the kind of bumps that the critics or opponents are pointing at it. That's a benefit of, of a federal system. A benefit of democracy is that when you use the existing democratic system to improve the democratic system, if you fail to do that, as long as the democratic system itself doesn't crumble, then you can continue using the democratic system. How does reform and revolution compare and why might revolution actually be a necessary step sometimes? or a kind of a revolution. Because I have one example in mind where reforming the system within the system is actually problematic enough that dismantling the system and replacing it with a new system is one, desirable, and two, being done. Because revolution doesn't have to be a violent transformation of the entire regime. It doesn't. That's the paradigm case, that's the Hollywood celebrity version of revolution. But revolution, political revolution, is replacing one system with an entirely new system. And the idea being that the old system cannot be improved, or cannot be improved sufficiently, or can't even be changed, so that what you have to do is you have to scrap it and start again. And the example that I have, which is uh, maybe a surprising one, is what the Minneapolis City Council just voted to do. The Minneapolis City Council just voted to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department and replace it with a public safety department. The argument for this is that the police department is beyond reform and that reform efforts have failed and that reform proposals, given the nature of the, of the, of the structure of the, of the Minneapolis Police Department, are going to be either impossible to implement or they're gonna fall far short of what needs to be done to improve that system. So they're just dismantling it and they're gonna create a brand new public safety system. Now, one of the things that they're gonna do in terms of ideas for creating an entirely new system is they're not gonna just make it up from scratch. What you can always do when you have a revolutionary, revolutionary idea, when you want a new system, is the entirely new system can draw on ideas from existing systems. What Minneapolis is gonna do is going to look at all kinds of policies that have been enacted by other police departments that have reformed themselves a little bit, by consent decrees that have essentially been judicially enforced upon police departments that have been unable to reform themselves or have engaged in notably bad behavior, systemically uh, long-term bad behavior, and so these consent decrees have been, have been pushed on them. Uh, they can also draw on ideas from other countries. They can draw on ideas from uh, reformers that have not necessarily been tested but that, that are very sound-seeming. So when you create an entirely new system, you're not just making it up from, from thin air. A different example, a related example, is that at the end of World War II, after Germany and Japan had been conquered and occupied by the Allies, the United States went in and engaged in a political revolution. What they did was they replaced one system, the imperial system in Japan and the Nazi system in Germany, with an entirely new system, with a democratic constitution. The way that those constitutions were written was not just by being like, oh, let's just start from scratch. 100 and 
50 years of work in democratic theory went into writing those constitutions. Those countries are very successful, Japan and Germany, and they have amazing political systems that the United States actually gave to them, and they have been modified a little bit over the last 70 years, but not a ton. The benefits of that 150 years of democratic theory and experience with democracy, right, drawing on ideas from existing systems and from, from the works of, of political philosophers, that was something that the delegates to the U.S. Constitutional Convention in 1787 didn't have access to. They had to make it up. I mean, they had some history. There were some limited forms of democracy in, in Great Britain, and there was Rome and Greece and some stuff, and, you know, some um, medieval city-states in, in Italy. There were some examples, but there was the, the material was thin, and they had to create a brand new system essentially from whole cloth. And then they ended up with, with weird things like the Electoral College, which was based on the College of Cardinals that chose the Pope. So like they were, they, they were really, in some cases, they were scratching for material to draw on. Political revolution doesn't have to be that same thing. The political revolution that the American founding fathers engaged in had access to way less material. As the Minneapolis City Council seeks to create a brand new system, a public safety department that is going to replace the police department, what the Minneapolis City Council is going to do to replace one system with an entirely new system is look at ideas from a variety of places. Revolution says this system that exists can't be fixed just by changing some pieces of it. Or it can be improved but not enough. We fall, we fall so far short of what is good and necessary that it just has to be dismantled. The old regime has to go away. So political reform is saying the regime is failing to live up to some of the promises that it makes. And we can use the regime itself, the democratic regime itself, to live up to those promises. When the efforts to do that fall short, we can continue doing that. Or when the efforts to do that actually make things worse, we can fix it and make things better. A political revolution basically says it's unfixable, and so we just have to scrap it. There are benefits and challenges to both of these approaches to improving the political system. The benefit of political reform is that because the changes are, one, done within the system itself, there's an automatic legitimacy to them. When a representative system that exists and policies already being made and, and choices are being made through the representative system and the representative system produces a political reform like campaign finance reform or like direct democracy or like mail-in balloting, that new idea has all the legitimacy of the pre-existing system. So you're not asking people to switch their allegiance from one system to another, and thereby actually have to like say, well, that system is illegitimate and this system is legitimate. That's what a revolution is asking for. A revolution is actually asking to say, this system is illegitimate, and this new system will have legitimacy. And when things are really bad, when it's clear that a system is illegitimate, revolution is really is the, is the better way. But the benefit of political reform is that there's that automatic legitimacy. Another benefit of political reform, which can, is actually tied to one of the flaws of political reform, is that it can be gradual and you can put something into place and particularly in a federal system where it can be done in laboratories of democracy at the state level instead of at the national level it can be put into place and see what comes of it because human beings can often not predict the consequences of the changes that they make and so instead of changing the entire system thinking it's going to be better because the old system was so bad 
and then the new system is worse. One of the benefits of reform is that it's less dangerous because when you put into place something that is problematic, it doesn't affect the entire political system. It can be contained. And then you can learn from it and go back or improve or make gradual steps. So the gradualism is a benefit. The gradualism of political reform also can be a problem when the system itself is so far from keeping its promises that gradualism is, is, is just not enough or is not perceived as enough. Now, revolution has, you know, if we want to talk about the benefits and the problems, it's really just the sort of the, the, the obverse of the benefits and problems of reform, and I've already mentioned them. But I would say that one of the biggest problems with a revolution of any kind, the larger scale it is, the bigger this problem becomes, is the legitimacy problem. Unless the old regime was so illegitimate that any new contender is going to have automatic legitimacy, a new system is going to struggle at first to seem legitimate. This goes for anything that's new, right? It's always going to struggle to get that kind of acceptance and legitimacy. You're the new kid in school. To get accepted is like, imagine that you're like, you're a star football player and you're smart and you're kind and you're just like the perfect person and you move to a different school. You're the new kid. You're still going to have a struggle to get accepted. You'd be like, well, but here's this, here, he's a star quarterback. He's nice. He's smart. He, all this stuff. But then certain people would be like, well, who the hell do you think you are coming into our school and thinking you can become the star quarterback? Who are you? Like that problem, that very high school problem is a legitimacy problem that speaks to political systems as well. Legitimacy is a hard thing to gain. When we're talking about a new kid in school, gaining acceptance, gaining legitimacy is like, it, it, it's not that problematic. When we're talking about replacing one system with an entirely new system, to the extent that the new system doesn't have its sea legs of legitimacy yet, that system is vulnerable to yet another revolution. That system is also not going to be ready to engage in political reform very quickly because you create a new system and then you quickly realize like, oh no, we have to change some things, we have to fix some things. That, that's actually admitting that your new plan was flawed from the beginning. And if you admit that too early, that is also going to curtail legitimacy. Revolutions are vulnerable early. And you know, in the history of revolutions, one of the things that happens is there are counter-revolutions successfully, there's regime collapse, there's also that the new, the, the new system, because it wasn't well thought through, is worse than the old system. Um, and one of the things that uh, is always fragile about a revolution is getting over that period. That's actually you know, one of the benefits of reform. And then, as I say, it's tied to the, down, the, the detriment, which is that reform can be too gradualist. So there's no right answer. Part of it is like, how big is the problem? If it's a relatively contained problem, reform is a great way to go. If it's a huge problem, a revolution might be necessary. And then of course, people are always going to differ. Do we need a revolution or not? 